I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about There Will Be Blood, the 2007 film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, based loosely on the novel Oil by Upton Sinclair. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Yes, hello. And Alex Cayos. <laughs> Hi. It begins. Uh, okay. So uh, before we dive into the to the, the, the episode, before we start talking about the early blood, uh, quick updates. So we passed a thousand patrons. Oh, my God. Uh, thank you, everyone who has signed up and supported the show. You guys are amazing. And as uh, the, you know, the perk that is unlocked by that is a trilogy on The Godfather, which is going to be a lot of fun to revisit and talk about. I'm very excited. Um, but so so we're going to do that in the new year. So Godfather is coming in January because December is going to be the month of the matrix so (laughs) (laughs) Alex and Trisha's faces are just like so excited so happy um but so yes building up to the release of resurrections we'll be doing the matrix revisited and then reloaded and uh what's the name of the the movie's not called the matrix revisited but we are revisiting it we are in our episode will be called the matrix Matrix revisited Revisited and reloaded and revolutions Revolutions. god it's been Uh, a long time since i've seen revolutions it's gonna be the title's forgettable that one oh my god um anyway so we're gonna be taking next week next week off for thanksgiving and then we'll be returning in december for our month of matrix and it's gonna be a lot of fun but now let's talk about there will be blood the movie that a young Michael Tucker once described as the Citizen Kane of our generation. Wow. So <laughs> this is the, the the framing a little bit of of me and there will be blood. And I've told this story on the podcast before, so I'll, I'll do it quickly. But my girlfriend at the time when it came out, her brothers were like the coolest people I knew. They were in like a band and listened to music like by artists I'd never heard before and like didn't really like, but that meant it was good. And they were just like edgy and cool and all this stuff. They got to see an early screening and came and reported back and knew I was like a PTA fan. And we're like, this is the greatest thing that's ever been put on film. Like this is the peak of cinema. And like, you know, 21 year old, 22 year old Michael that was like, you know, obsessed with PTA was so excited about that. Went to see it and it basically was, as far as I was concerned, it was just like, this movie is like, the highest achievement of cinema. Um, so I watched it a lot when I was younger uh, and then stayed away from it for a really long time because I was worried that it wouldn't age well and pretty much all subsequent PTA films I have had big problems with and have been unable to get into and we'll talk about PTA. Uh, but I revisited it earlier this year and really enjoyed it and then watching it again to prepare for this podcast i'm still in love with the filmmaking that's happening in this Mm -hmm. movie there are just things that are being done that i think are undeniably like powerful and impactful and fit with the story and the mood and the world and there is something really you know it's a very simple story it's a very focused but relentless story and i I'm hooked into it in a way that is rare for me. So it's it's almost hard for me to like analyze this film because I just get swept up in it and the tensions and the ideas that are 
happening. So I am partially still that young film school Michael <laughs> that like loves just you know going on this filmmaking ride. Um, not a perfect film, but I I do love it and the filmmaking that's happening in it. So that's me and and there will be blood. Brian, I want to hear from you. Okay. Um, I will start by saying that I think this is an excellent film. And I think that um, Paul Thomas Anderson is a master of his craft. Um, but I have had sort of a bumpy relationship with him as a filmmaker. Um, it started with Boogie Nights where I saw I was I was pretty young. I was like 15 or, or something. I saw Boogie Nights and was just like when I didn't even I wasn't even old enough to dislike movies. I was like, <laughs> I don't really like that. Um, and then... <laughs> And then come to like college where I'm watching American Beauty and Fight Club. And then my friend says, have you seen Magnolia? And I'm like, no. And she's like, oh, you got to watch it. And then three hours later, I'm like, that was so like pretentious and <laughs> overwrought. And um, and then I loved Punch Drunk Love. Good job. Uh, and then uh, and then I went back and watched Heart Eight at some point and wasn't super impressed with that and everything post There Will Be Blood. As you said, Michael, I'm just kind of been like, eh, it's fine. Like, I don't I generally don't have like a huge problem with it. But, um, but yeah, There Will Be Blood I, I saw in the theater and I other than Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, I didn't have any strong positive feelings about it, I guess I would say. Uh, and the peak end rule, the last thing I remember about the movie is that final sequence where it's like a milkshake joke and then the main <laughs> character saying I'm finished and then the credits roll. And I'm just like, wow, that was so dumb. And <laughs> but then, of course, like what? I <laughs> went back and watched, you know, I, I watched like the the baptism scene over and over again and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I, I loved so much about the movie. Um, but I just remembered thinking that that last sequence was just so it was like not a bad scene in and of itself, but just a, a bad way to end a this epic two and a half hour movie um, for me. So for all those reasons, Trisha. Just in fairness, to speak to Alex and Michael's reaction when you said that the last scene hit, hit you the wrong way, um, it was a pretty controversial ending to this movie when this movie came out. Like, there were plenty of critics who really liked the movie but bumped on the way that it ended. And mm. so I think that that's... You weren't alone there, Brian. It certainly feels like the movie... There's this epilogue all of a sudden, like a, a time jump, you know, like... 90% of the way through and it feels like the epilogue with the sun, you know, feels, you know, perhaps intimately attached to everything. And then, but, but that final sequence, which I hope we get back to did really, you know, uh, off put some people. And so, um, I think that, and it, it, it is unfortunately the only thing you remember <laughs> when you walk uh -huh. out of the theater <laughs> is I drink your milkshake right. and then the brutal murder uh, in the last two minutes of this movie. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's a valid reaction that you had, Brian. I just want to say right. that. Yeah. And I, I, was thinking, I think that's fair. We'll, we'll definitely talk about the vote, but yeah. I, yeah, I think that's fair. Right. I, I was thinking about, you know, the, the filmmakers who are very big uh, and stylish with their movies and there are people like uh, Denis Villeneuve and Terrence Malick, where it's like, look, this is going to be a sort of long, maybe tedious experience, but if you're into it, you're going to be so into it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but like with those filmmakers, I think the worst I feel during one of their movies is just bored. Like, okay, I would like to see, I would like for the next thing to happen. I get what you're doing, but maybe it's not for me. But with a Paul Thomas Anderson, especially like early Paul Thomas Anderson or a 
Tarantino or somebody, it's like the worst I feel is angry at the filmmaker. <laughs> like, like sure. just feeling like, oh, this is so self-indulgent. This is so pretentious. And look, I like David Lynch and, you know, I like plenty of people where I'm like, okay, you did do the thing for me. So great. So I get that obviously different strokes for different folks, but I feel like this movie is, it doesn't do the PTA, like look at how weird and, um, and sort of pretentious I'm, I am. But then in that last scene, it sort of is like, it's, it's challenging you a little bit, right. To kind of, to, to stay on board the, the, the bucking Bronco. Uh, so rewatching it finally recently, uh, was a really cool experience because I'm just so blown away by how much this movie does well with all of the filmmaking and the performances and everything. Um, I don't find myself terribly compelled by it. Like I, the dramatic question is just, I guess, is this asshole going to make more money? Uh, and, or <laughs> arguably like, is he going to save his soul? Which the movie never really makes me that interested in. Um, so I, I don't love this movie, but I really appreciate it. And I had a really nice time watching it again after not having seen it for so long for all the reasons I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Alex, let's bring you in. What, what are your, what are your thoughts? Point counterpoint. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love this movie so much and revisiting it, um, for the podcast. I, I also had the same feelings as you, Michael, that, okay, maybe there was a, afterglow of my first experience watching it which was one of my favorite theater experiences ever because it was the first time i went to the arc light cinema in hollywood wow i, I didn't even <laughs> live in la yet i was visiting la wow. and literally i was with some friends and they were like do you want to go see a movie tonight and i was like okay sure i want to see there will be blood let's go see that and like oh we're gonna go to arc light i'm like what's the arc light <laughs> and we drove into hollywood we stepped into this theater it was like a huge theater. It wasn't just like a normal movie theater size. It was big. It was one of their big screens. And then this movie started playing on that huge screen with amazing sound. And I was just blown away by the experience. It was like, you know, I've talked about this with Dune recently and a lot of other films, but you know, when a movie can give me that kind of full body cinema experience, that is like what I live for. And this movie gave it to me in that amazing Arclight theater. Um, and I, you know, I was already a Paul Thomas Anderson fan, as we talked about on our patron episode about 1999, you know, Magnolia, I was on board with that era of Paul Thomas Anderson, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love. I was down for the indulgent maximalist, you know, style in your face filmmaking. Um, and, and this movie is almost like an interesting transition movie kind of from like those two into this kind of these like period piece stranger and stranger concoctions uh, that he's been making over the over the last uh, several years um and this one just hit a sweet spot for me because i you know I, you're you, you were kind of uh, i think poking fun at them michael your your girlfriend's like cool brother or whatever saying that this is the citizen can of our generation but truly this movie you know brian you mentioned uh, what's the dramatic question like why do i care like what's you know where do we go next that's how I feel watching Citizen Kane. That's how I feel watching a lot of like, you know, the, our most acclaimed movies of all time. Sure. I'm bored to tears during long stretches of them. I'm just going to be honest. Like, I'm not that engaged. They're not modern movies that like have me every second at the edge of my seat, but I appreciate them for other reasons. And There Will Be Blood also does not have me at the edge of my seat at every moment, but it does have me locked into a mood and and locked into a state of, 
if not like dramatic question suspense, just deep unease through mm, so sure. much of it. Um, and the more I revisit it and the more I watch it, the more I do appreciate the just kind of deeper symbolic meaning of why this story, why in the American West, why this religious figure, why this oil baron, what is this movie kind of saying in a more like almost mythic way about mm -hmm. America. And, and then I think everything falls into place for me and things like the ending don't seem like some strange self-indulgent, you know, bad ending, but rather uh, saying something actually about these two forces of American life and uh, what ultimately wins out. So I mean, that's, that's, who knows if that's intended, but I get a lot of meaning from the movie and the more I revisit it, the more meaning I can draw from it. And so it's it's proven to me a film that isn't just, you know, I, and I think I probably should revisit some of his more recent work uh, that which I also wasn't a, a huge fan of. Um, and maybe there is more meaning to be gotten out of it. I just didn't enjoy the experience enough to want to revisit to like get that meaning. But there will be blood I do intrinsically enjoy looking at the cinematography, looking at these performances listening to that soundtrack and and while i get to marinate and all that i am getting more and more depth out of it as well so i it, it is being reaffirmed as a citizen kane for my generation in my <laughs> mind i have i still really love it as boring as citizen kane was everybody <laughs> <laughs> exactly you heard it here first <laughs> yeah awesome cool okay cool yeah trisha yeah, you should revisit Phantom Thread, Alex. I think that I should. you would really should. like it, actually, if you like watched it again and we could talk about it. Because I, okay, so I am a Paul Tom Sanford fan. Um, I had Boogie Nights on my best of the 90s list, and I really love Boogie Nights. That was, I think, my first PTA movie, and I was just like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> it's so good. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he makes these films that are... Um, so layered that like you feel sometimes lost in the middle of watching them the first time and the second time <laughs> and sometimes the third time. And, uh, I, I think that that's, I think that that's a barrier to entry and I think that there will be blood. And this was my experience watching it the first time, even as someone who was already a fan, I was like, God, this movie is difficult. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why are you making it so hard? Like, why did you why did you have a, a 15 minute prologue with no dialogue at all? And why is the music like this? It's so distracting. It's so much all the time. Like, um, you have a, a completely unlikable protagonist. This movie has no trajectory. The protagonist has no clear goal. It's almost three hours long. Um, there's all of these disparate plot threads that never actually come together into anything. And in the midst of all of it, you have this like atonal music and stretches of just really grizzled Daniel Day-Lewis doing a voice really hard and <laughs> like just willfully murdering everybody and or just again being totally uh, a sociopath. And it to make a sociopath um, who is sort of fundamentally unrelatable as a character to a lot of people, although I've come around and, and we can talk more about Daniel Plainview as a protagonist, but, um, you know, you have somebody who's probably not a super relatable and, and or super sympathetic protagonist. Then you have a period movie that's set in the early 1900s, most of it, 
um, which is not inherently all that marketable. Uh, and then you just don't have a plot. Um, like he just really, it feels like PT Anderson is not, is never really concerned with making approachable movies, but with this one, it's just like, God, he really put us at arm's length, didn't he? Um, and yet I, I've come around on the movie. All of that is to say, uh, you know, I saw it in 2007, um, and I faced the inevitable No Country for Old Men versus There Will Be Blood showdown, um, and I was, it was not even close for me. I was, I, I've talked about No Country for Old Men being one of my, my favorite movies of all time, and, uh, I think it was just easier to parse on a variety of levels. It's just an easier movie, and that's saying something considering no country for old men it's already no country for old men like it's already from a, a challenging filmmaker right the coens are challenging already and it's still easier than there will be blood i think in a lot of ways where on you know for three quarters of no country for old men it's it's actually a very compelling fast moving taut interesting crime thriller that's like very approachable for the most part um and then you know it has the inevitable ending which we recently talked about but yeah I was so solidly in the camp of No Country and I was just put off from the get-go with There Will Be Blood. Uh, and there is some really horrifying violence in both of these movies, but in There Will Be Blood, it was hard for me to see where it was going or what it all meant. And so I was like, there's nothing that turns me off faster to a movie than gratuitous violence without a clear theme. And that mm. is what I was feeling at the time that I saw There Will Be Blood. I was like, this is just horrifying violence and I don't see a theme. And this poor kid is just going through hell. Um, and I don't understand why I'm being made to watch this. However, I feel like in a couple, in recent years, and especially this time around, I kind of feel like I cracked this movie a little bit, at least for myself. Um, and all of that also to say that even in the midst of not particularly liking it on a personal level, I've always deeply respected it because even if it's purposefully difficult, it's exactly the movie P.T. Anderson wanted to make. Mm -hmm. And he made it very, 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 very well. So, you know, you can, you can resent sloppy filmmaking and you can even resent pretentious filmmaking, but when somebody made exactly the movie they want to make, you kind of have to be like, well, yeah, you, you did it right on some level. Yeah, I like this movie is just so fascinating. Like just yes. hearing like everybody's like reactions and responses to it. And with each of you, there being a thing where I'm like, I align 100% with what you're saying. And then the next sentence is like, that was completely the opposite uh -huh. of my experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, yeah, it's, I think that's, yeah. One of the things that is just so interesting about the movie is that it is clear, like you're saying, Trisha, like he made the movie he wanted, like, this is a P.T. Anderson movie, 100%. It is there. And I, I think what they were all going for ends up there on the screen. And so I think that is, in some ways, what what's cool, why it's cool to talk about it and see people react to it, is that there, mm -hmm. there doesn't feel anyway like there's, uh, well, they, they didn't really like hit the mark there because like right. this thing happened and that thing happened. So you're, there's not really room to be like, yeah, maybe if they did that or maybe they did that. It's clear that they did things intentionally and it feels like it all ended up on the screen. So you're really getting to react to the artist's intent. 
We'll never know that right. for sure, but that's how it feels to me anyway. Definitely. Right. I, I rewatched Boogie Nights a, a few years ago when I was Scotty J for Halloween. Um, the year, the year that <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman passed away. Um, and, uh, and it was, it's so interesting cause it's like, I'm having this, I'm having two feelings at once. One of which is, uh, this is just so well made, you know, yeah. and the other of which is, but I don't really know if it's for me. And it's, it's interesting. And I think like PTA of all filmmakers, I can sort of experience both those feelings at once. And it's just really interesting. And I haven't quite put my finger on why, but it is sort of a feeling of, of like, when you feel like a filmmaker, maybe they know how good they are, right? Mm. And then and that can be a little off-putting sometimes. And, and he knows how good he is for sure. Mm. Mm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and so maybe let's start with Daniel Plainview, the, yeah. the protagonist, because I think there there are a lot of different reactions happening to him. And and I was thinking about this this watch through, like, why do I enjoy watching him so much? Because obviously he's not a good person and does bad <laughs> things, uh, and can be sociopathic and all the, all this stuff. Uh, but for some reason, I just love watching him. And I think part of that is just like it like taps into like the tamped down darkness within myself. And that it's kind of like it feels good sometimes to watch people do things that you would never want to do, but like sometimes feel deep down inside. This is also why I really like the scene in Fight Club where uh, Edward Norton beats up Jared Leto, like Jared Leto, the yeah. like horrific, awful scene. <laughs> It was like one of my favorites where like in his monologue afterward, it's just like, I just wanted to like destroy something beautiful, right? And like mm -hmm. screw these people and kill like. I wanted to breathe smoke. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe it's just that like I am not that person. And so it's, it is just like a pressure release valve sometimes to see that happen. But also thinking about like Miranda in The Devil Wears Prada or like, like there were some mm. bad guys and antagonists and awful people or Jake Gyllenhaal and um, Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, thank you. Where it's like there is just something weirdly fascinating about watching them work. And so I think that with Daniel Plainview, plus his performance, plus his struggling relationship with HW, where I think you do mm. see that he does care and is devastated in his own way when things go wrong and he has to abandon him, uh, makes it creates enough emotional buy in for me that I'm like, oh, I'm I'm invested in this character and want things to go better than I know that they're going to go mostly for the people around him. But because of that, I'm curious to see what he's going to do and how it's all going to play out. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. For me, there's something just uh, magnetic about watching this character, not because I like him or because I want to be him or want him to you know, succeed. It's because he's fascinating to me. And, and I think there's, it's the combination of the, the commitment to kind of a way of speaking that does feel like it was taken from like a diary or like a old, <laughs> some old letter that, you know, 
uh, Daniel Day-Lewis read to study up for the role, you know, from like a oil baron to his friend or something. There, there's, there's this very deliberate way of speaking that is just fun to listen to. And then below that, there is just a simmering tension because you can just feel that he just despises everybody. He just kind of despises the inconvenience of having to deal with all these pleasantries and all this, you know, BS with these religious people and these simpletons and these people who want his goddamn money. You know, he just hates everybody. And he, you know, it says it in his, you know, kind of pivotal speech. Right. Just says it frankly that I can't, you know, what is it? These people. Right. Um, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. And then, yeah, the, I can't keep doing this on my own with all these people. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. one of those th- and, those trailer moments, too. I can't keep doing course. this on my own. You know, it's yeah. just like you, you heard those lines so many times. And then, like the yeah. violin, cello. Okay. Yeah. 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 And and I think there's something I that I really enjoy in a tense uncomfortable way about you know watching extreme characters have to navigate social niceties and uh try to like navigate like a world that expects them to be normal but they're not normal like they are a sociopath they are somebody who feels things that you're not supposed to feel and i you know just like you know nightcrawler for example like i i do find it fascinating to watch a character that is deeply like a deeply bad person have to navigate a social world uh, that they hate, you know, but barely keeping their rage and disdain in at all times. But it's there under the surface in their tone, in their shortness, in their impatience. It's always there. And I think, you know, uh, Dan Lewis even like physically embodies that a lot of the time. It, there's like a stiffness in his body and just like a Ugh, like he just wants to punch to kill everybody. Um, and so, yeah, so that kind of performance, you know, it, if it was, if it, if it didn't have all those layers too, if it, if it didn't have all those, uh, that, all that subtext going on, I, I think I would kind of get bored watching this just greedy, horrible person do right. bad things. But because mm. of all those layers, every scene is fascinating to me. And, and the music helps too. The music is just creating this constant in your face. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Somebody's going to die any second, you know, feeling. <laughs> yeah. Sh- shout out to Johnny Greenwood score. Of course. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. An incredible score. Well, yeah, Alex, ha- having now watched uh, per your recommendation to season and a half of Succession, I know why you like that show so much too. <laughs> Just like yeah, the I'm, Plainview I'm okay. family. I'm okay with fascinating uh, capitalist horrible right. people. <laughs> Um, and the interesting thing is that this was the sort of decade of the anti-hero. Um, mm. You know, a lot of it was on television uh, with Tony Soprano and Walter White and Don Draper and, you know, just yeah. sort of your your main character who is not, they're not supposed to be a likable person, but you are interested in what they're doing and you understand where they're coming from. And then movies like There Will Be Blood and The Departed and even like Sweeney Todd or whatever. It was just like, we sort of like, oh, we can actually have like bad guy main characters now and people will watch that. And then even Casino Royale and Dark Knight and Iron Man, right? Like even the superheroes are sort of bad guys, like more heavily flawed maybe than than a normal kind of, you know, Captain America or something. Um, but it's interesting because if you look back at Greek tragedies or even Shakespeare, it was like, there was no, we need to make the audience care about the, we need to save the cat here. And <laughs> then, uh, and then they'll watch the downfall. It's like, no, here is a, here's just like a tyrant uh, who, you know, is, and hubris is their tragic flaw. And you're going to just watch them 
do that for a while and then they're going to die at the end and you're going to be like, good, they died. They learned their lesson or or we learned our lesson, I guess, is the audience. Um, so uh, so I think that like that's sort of what we're seeing now with these these kind of antihero things is like, OK, what is this movie saying thematically about society if the antihero doesn't get away or um, does get away with it? And if they don't get away with it, then what is the movie saying about that kind of attitude, that kind of person? Um, and then on top of all of it, you have Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, right? Like his yeah. accent, yeah. his intensity, his focus, the, <laughs> his walk, the way he carries himself. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, his mustache. His mustache, <laughs> which is all, you know, all DDL. Um, but uh, I'm curious. I just want to hear from like our listeners. I, I might say that I think the baptism sequence is the best performance, the best like moment performance that I've ever seen, like in a scene on, on film, basically, mm. um, because he's doing we can do this later, but like he is performing for the crowd while mm -hmm. also being angry at Eli for, for challenging him while also realizing the things that Eli, and that all comes out in, in every little movement on his face. So I just, I think that his performance is amazing, but I think in that scene, it's just incredible. Well, you still haven't seen the crucible. Also an all-timer Daniel Day-Lewis performance. I did get um, it to watch it. The Crucible, if you want your 1600s Daniel Day-Lewis, you can check out The Crucible, and then you could just go straight to Last of the Mohicans, get your 1700s Daniel Day-Lewis, then go right into your 1800s, the early 1900s Daniel Day-Lewis with this. It'd be a hell of a triple feature. <laughs> I love the tricentennial DDL feature. <laughs> I love it. I mean, look, the man looks good in just like old timey clothes. Uh -huh. I mean, that's yeah. one of his many gifts. And yeah. weird um, in regular clothes. Yes. He does. Yeah, it freaks me out to see him in modern yeah. day anything. Yeah. Yeah. Where is he? Where's Gangs of New York in the uh, historical Daniel Day Lewis timeline? I don't it's know. It's 1800s, right? Yeah, I think it's I think so. So it would be before There Will Be Blood. So actually, yeah. yes, yeah. fit that one in there. You got a continuous timeline. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Daniel Day Lewis at every period in American history. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, I think there are a couple of things here about why Daniel Plainview ultimately does work as a as a compelling main character, even if he's, you know, got some of these off-putting characteristics like we're talking about. And one of them is, as you guys um, mentioned in the baptism scene, you know, he really is wrestling with actual human feelings where we can see that he feels guilt about having left HW or like abandoned right. HW. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are always, and there are hints, uh, and even like deliberate beats throughout that tell us he does have real feeling. It is not all fake mm -hmm. for his son. Right. So that's critical. I feel like if you don't have those, you absolutely wouldn't care about him at all. If he was all calculating and all cold about HW, I think that that's a problem. And it's it starts off in a really smart way where we see him, you know, pick up the baby and, you know, at first he's just trying to feed him and doesn't even know how to like hold him. And it's <laughs> super awkward. But then when they're on the train and the baby reaches up yeah. and grabs his mm -hmm. like face and his mustache mm -hmm. and uh, he Here's smiles. Right. It's it, it goes back to the he wouldn't be he's not performing for anybody in that scene. Right. Like, there's nobody around to see him right. being fatherly or adorable with H.W. that he's trying to, like, impress or sell something to. And so that scene we have reason to believe is his, his real feeling. Right. That that's like a genuine moment. Um, the other thing, though, is if you take any 
anti-hero and stand him next to somebody worse or just as bad, right. he tends to look a lot better. Mm-hmm. And enter Eli Sunday, yeah. um, who is possibly way worse of a person than Daniel Plainview. He's not violent in the same way, but he is preying on people in just as much of a calculating and terrible way. Um, and so I think that their rivalry, I mean, and Paul Dano is really great in this, but I think their rivalry is so much of the reason why we like, we don't like Eli. Eli's way worse. And the, the movie is so plants us so solidly in Daniel Plainview's point of view that we are predisposed to dislike Eli and we are predisposed in that sense. If there's a competition going on and there is, to be on Daniel's side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really critical point. And it's, I think Daniel Plainview is able to see through Eli in a way that no one else can. So it's like, like you're saying, it's his own performance that he's giving his own showmanship allows him to like x-ray vision into this thing that we can see, right? We can see, as you're saying, Eli performing and manipulating people in a similar way but just in a more like proper like everyone Mm -hmm. blah 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 and so i think that and mixed with kind of what you were saying earlier alex also of like watching someone who cannot follow the social norms Mm -hmm. have to struggle with them i also like how that reveals sometimes the absurdity of the social norms sure and so i think that's like Daniel Plainview is our window into that. And I feel like those elements are empathetic and can draw us into mm. uh, why it's why it's compelling to watch him navigate the events scene by scene. Mm. You know what's hard? Moving oil from your new discovery well to the ocean. You've got to buy up all the land, deal with the pesky holdouts like the bandies, inevitably feud with a person pretending to be your brother, and then run a pipeline all that way. You know what's not hard? Sending huge files with Massive. Massive is a file sharing solution for modern post-professionals tired of data caps and bubble-wrapped hard drives. Simply create an account to quickly transfer terabytes of data over the cloud. Massive's pay-as-you-go model means you only pay for what you need, and there are virtually no limits to the size of file you can share. Send uncompressed videos to teams around the world and speed up your production cycle. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay. The link is also in the show notes, or if you're watching on YouTube, just click the link on screen right now. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. Thanks to Massive for sponsoring this episode. Now back to the episode. And their rivalry brings me to kind of uh, kind of some deeper meanings I, I garnered from the film this time around. And I was reading a review um, from the Times and the, the writer wrote a biblical. This is a biblical parable about America's failure to square religion and greed. And I think there's something really uh, so perfect about, uh, you know, they're, they're basically this, this completely greedy oil baron who is obsessed with competition who can't stand anybody else having success. Um, just like a, like a malicious form of capitalism paired with the like religious showman, like 
like we're going to put on a show for you everybody and we're going to build a bigger church and it's going to be kind of like a like a stage play when we when we give a sermon it's going to be lights and spectacle and one it's, goddamn it's a, hell of a show one <laughs> goddamn <laughs> hell of a show exactly and and it's just and i feel like this movie the music from the very beginning in those opening shots where mm -hmm. he's digging down there it's like this is unholy like what whatever he's doing down here and finding this oil and this goop, you know, the music is like, it's like a horror movie. It's like we're in Mordor. Like, <laughs> this is not good. Like, this is, something is sick about this industry or what is happening here. And so the, the movie to me, what I love about it so much is it it feels like this, just like tone poem about like, like the sickness of America. <laughs> and like, almost like these original sins or like original, like, deep rotting sicknesses of you know this these early foundational days um and and these two kind of sides of that sickness coming head to head and that's why i think it's interesting that in the ending um like like rapacious capitalism beats Wins. the rest of uh -huh. you know, the other side into submission uh i think this is an, is an interesting statement to make reading the film in that way mm -hmm. yes so this time around, uh, my frustration with this movie was always that I had no idea what it was about and I couldn't figure out its theme. And then this time around, I really began to focus on this idea of hypocrisy. And I like, I don't know, when I started reading and like looking at everything through the lens of hypocrisy and like how deep hypocrisy can run, um, that's when it really kind of all cracked open for me. And so like the central hypocrisy at the heart of Daniel Plainview is that he claims to be a father, but he family is man. a family yeah. man, but he is not, he is using, right. This relationship, this family relationship to get ahead in business. And he, as many, you know, deep like hypocrites do, Anytime someone else is living even slightly hypocritically, it mirrors his own hypocrisy and he cannot stand it. And he has to eradicate it and get it away from him because it throws into relief his own central deep hypocrisy. He reminds me a lot of Don Draper in that way, right? So mm -hmm. spoilers for Mad Men if you're not a Mad Men fan, but like we talked about on our Mad Men episode the whole thing about Don Draper is that he is not who he says he is. He has stolen someone else's identity and is living this like deep double life essentially. Um, and he himself is aware of that hypocrisy in his life, but is never able to make his peace with it. Daniel Plainview, on the other hand, is aware of his deep hypocrisy, but is in such deep denial of it that anytime anyone else is living slightly hypocritically, it just pokes him and pokes him and he has to just immediately kill it or get it away from him or get rid of it. And his disdain for everyone else's hypocrisy is limitless. And so that is what he can't stand about Eli Sunday is Eli Sunday's hypocrisy because he understands that that is purely capitalist as well. That's purely about power and control mm -hmm. of people. Um, and... That's his whole issue with Kevin J. O'Connor, who I love in this movie, who shows up claiming to be his brother, right? His yeah. This guy shows up, claims to be a family member mm -hmm. when he is in fact not a family member, Just which like is exactly <laughs> the crime of Daniel Plainview, is claiming right. to be family when you are not. And that is, it just enrages him so much that he murders, right? And so it's like, 
And even things like, um, I was thinking about it this time, the, uh, the patriarch of the Sunday family who like used to beat his daughter, mm, like mm-hmm. Daniel Plainview has to correct that because him being a bad father exposes Daniel Plainview's own like crimes as a bad father. And so he has to like, no, you're not going to beat your daughter anymore. You have to be a good father. You have to be a real prophet. You have to be a real preacher and preach real religion. Like you have to be true to this. You have to be my real brother. Otherwise, if, if nothing, if anything around me is not 100% real, then it just, you know, I, I just like have to sit in my own hypocrisy. And that is so deeply American that I don't even know where to start with it. It's so American. It's so capitalist, right? The nature of the hypocrisy is violence. And it's just such a scathing um, portrait of that, of like the empire builders of America. (sighs) Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was all like beautifully said. Um, This, this movie is interesting because it's so, it's sort of so thematically simple and, or I guess I should say focused in just the, like the greed versus religion, these two characters and that the, what they're doing. And then for all the reasons you just said, it's also thematically complex because it, it gets into mm-hmm. a lot of those different, um, the, those sort of, uh, facets basically. Um, and yeah, and you see how it all carries through over decades in this movie, you know, you have the, the HW accident when, uh, Daniel is just celebrating the ocean under their feet, yep. you know, they're uh-huh. like, Oh, it was HW. We no, he's not. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then of course uh, he leaves him on the train. And then mm-hmm. the thing that's, that I noticed that's never really stated in the movie, but it's very obvious if you're looking for it is the fact that 16 years later, he still never bothered to learn sign language. Right. No, he's I, like, I need a translator. Right. 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 Um, and then in the final scene with Eli, um, as you were saying, Trisha, like how needing other people needing to bring down uh, other people who are uh, false prophets, basically, and needing needing Eli to admit that basically, like if you say we're the same, then maybe I'll give you what you want. But you need to you need to admit that we need to say, like, we are both doing the same thing. We're just doing it in very different ways. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I don't know if this goes right into the hypocrisy thing, but it kind of does. But, you know, the, the preceding scene before that final scene is this really devastating scene with his son. I love the mm-hmm. actor who plays his son, mm-hmm. kind of all grown up. Um, and it, it, you know, it basically is this irreparable sin that can never be taken back for his son to break away from the family business and to try to make his own way in the world. Because once again, that does ruin the image that ruins the perfect plain view image. Um, And now he is the competition and Mm -hmm. just, it's like Mm -hmm. such a cardinal sin. You can't go back. I'm going to now destroy you with whatever I have in my arsenal about your real identity how low you are it's just yeah it's it, it you see that turn and down day lewis he's already kind of screwed up from alcoholism and stuff but he just gets so dark mm-hmm. well he even he even articulates it so plainly where he says like you are ruining the image of you as my son he mm-hmm, says right. that word image like mm-hmm. you ruin the image of you as my son when you do this and then yeah you become a competitor which we know that word competition from yeah. the midpoint monologue where he talks about having i want no one else to succeed right, right. and so 
Yeah, it's a devastating scene where he finally admits the truth of that. But we already see that he's a broken person at that point, right? Yeah, he's just like right. shooting guns in his <laughs> yeah, mansion. Oh my God. Like, right. <laughs> so it's like we we understand that he doesn't have anything left to lose. He's already effectively lost his relationship with his son. He's alienated every single person in his life. So there's no need. He he was living this like life of hypocrisy when it was gaining him something, when it was gaining him wealth. Right. Um, and we learn at a certain point in the the middle where he's talking to uh, the guy who Henry, Henry, who's not Henry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where he's talking to him and he's like, I wanted to you know, buy that house or make that house or whatever. Um, and so he gets everything that he wants. There's no reason to continue lying um, except yeah, he's lashing out and, and wants to just hurt uh, his son at that point or or hw at that point and so it's not a surprise that when eli shows up shilling the shame the same bs that he's been shilling the whole time that that would enrage right it would enrage right. daniel plainview to a breaking point yeah yeah something along those lines that i was tracking also is that there's almost like a one-to-one -one relationship of when daniel plainview takes a step toward uh money and success something happens to his body or the people he cares about right so what he, yep. so he has to break his leg to find the oil and presumably uh -huh. drag himself back to town wherever he is right so and he has a, a limp for forever after that and then as we were saying earlier when the the geyser you know catches on fire like it means there's a huge ocean of oil. It's the best news ever. But I've now sacrificed my son's hearing and our relationship essentially for forever. And then that that is, you know, in the finale, that kind of uh, happens in an ultimate way where he has everything he ever wanted, but it's awful. And by in doing that, he like loses his son for good and completely, which is like also kind and of his a, body is like. Wrench right. back, like right. destroyed. Right. Yeah. He's like when he stands up after Eli comes in and he's, you know, Eli turns his back and he's trying to open the the alcohol bottle. He does this like shuffle yeah. thing that like is so weird. It's almost but, goofy, right? Yeah, but it, but I like it. Somehow feels like just like believable for me. Um, and then and then you have twenty three year old Paul Dano playing like a forty something <laughs> yeah, year old. Yeah, forty five year old. I had not thought about that before. Yeah. This this time I was like, he looks the same. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um talking about henry i feel like you know the scene where uh daniel kills him is so intense for so many great story reasons but also like the filmmaking and the editing in that sequence is yeah like it just all comes together so well and so i feel like it's an example of you know, PTA does lots of long takes, some that call attention to themselves, some that don't, but also just has the confidence to stay on a shot and like watch a performance happen and like let you go through and like detect all the little things. And the rhythm of that sequence, uh, has, as it culminates, you know, it, there's a very long shot on Henry where he's like, I'm going to level with you. This is what's going on. Like everything can mm -hmm. be fine. This is my rational, reasonable explanation. Yep. I'm even giving you like, you know, this is the answer to your question. You did have a brother, like blah, blah, blah. You get to see him like go through all of that. And the whole time you're just wondering, what is Daniel thinking? What is Daniel What's he going to do? do? And then it cuts to his face and it is like, you are dead, sir. This person, like, <laughs> yeah. 
And it's just, it's that great culmination of yeah, filmmaking and performance and editing and cinematography that just accentuates the, yeah, the emotion of that moment. And there's so many of those long takes where the camera relationship to the editing, you know, it just creates this tension. The music also, you know, as we were talking about, but it reminded me of The Shining this time where Mm. like Mm. the music is not helping you in any way. It's just telling you be generally worried. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like moments where, you know, after hw lights the cabin on fire i was was about to talk about this one the long one where he goes runs outside right and you can just see hw's silhouette standing there defiantly but also like what is my dad gonna do right yeah Uh. that it all plays out in a long take and it's it's not just and this is why like i love pta sometimes is like there's a dolly move like the dolly the camera dollies to the door and then it dollies back and that's not a big deal but for some reason the way he combines panning and dollying and the extent to which you can dolly and can't go any further. Like there's just some kind of tension that is created in the way yes. he moves his camera that is just like palpable and, and no one else does it like him. Yeah. I think that's one of, yeah, one of the pleasures of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie is it's somehow there's this perfectionism and yeah, like we've been saying, it's like, this is exactly what he intended. And yet it's not like David Fincher perfect. It's not mm-hmm. perfect in like a clinical way. It's perfect in this almost poetic way that you mm. can't put your finger on or you you don't know how you could intentionally do this. Right. And yet it was intentionally yes. done and somehow it captured this very particular feeling. But I don't know how I would have thought of that. You know, that's you just did it and it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really nice blend of, you know, Speaking of Fincher, we've we talked uh, recently about the sort of like the the very cold, uh, calculated Fincher of modern day versus like the very gritty Fincher of seven era. Um, And this is sort of both of those things at once. Like it's everything feels, as you were saying, Michael, so purposeful and just this gorgeous cinematography and the lighting is is like natural or it feels like it's natural and it feels Mm -hmm. so everything feels so pristine. But also it feels so gritty and organic and, you know, everything from the costumes to some of the camera work, which isn't being very blockbustery and and purposeful. It's being a little more. I'll say the word organic again. Uh, and then, you know, you have just things like there's a bead of sweat running down yep. Daniel's cheek and there's like dirt on his teeth <laughs> or something, you know? So it's a it's a really nice blend. Like this movie is just flawless in terms of its actual, like everything technical about it and the way it looks and yeah. feels. Well, and part of that look is the fact that it was shot on film, um, I think as, as he always does. But, mm-hmm. but this movie in particular, rewatching it, I was like, oh yeah, thank God. This is shot on like glorious. I don't know if it was seventy millimeter. Probably was. You know, I don't glorious. Think, so. I think it was just. Oh, okay. like anamorphic thirty-five, like classic yeah. film, film. Just beautiful classic film stock. Because the the quality of the light in so many shots is just so gorgeous in that classic film stock way. And I think about shots like during the you know the nighttime fireball, you know mm-hmm. silhouette. You know, like there's a certain just way the light looks and the way the shadows look and the way uh Daniel Day-Lewis's face drenched in oil like looking kind of like a monster smiling (laughs) up at the fire the way that looks that just it it feels inherently 
film. Like this is this is a film, goddammit. And it's not <laughs> it's that you know, and I and I love what we're what we can see now. I mean, like, you know, Dune was shot uh digitally, you know, and it, it's absolutely gorgeous, but it's a different kind of texture, it's a different kind of quality to it. And I'm so happy this movie exists in this classic film stock textured uh, mm-hmm. format because it it's 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 a huge part of what I you know, when the movie is in a slower stretch or nothing's really happening, I'm still just really enjoying this shot uh, because it's just a piece of art uh, in that old, old, like old style, classic cinema film way. Yeah. yeah. There's a cool series of videos that I can put in the show notes that like breaks down. Basically, it's like a compilation of different interviews with uh the dp and pta talking about how they shot all of it and like the the Mm. specific film stocks that they use and they're very like low sensitivity so you it requires a lot of light and it makes dark scenes like really dark just like all these challenges that like it, it kind of speaks to how i feel about this whole the movie in general is like there are all these like constraints some were externally imposed some were self imposed but they created the right box to work within to create this unique Mm -hmm. thing where like if you had done it maybe the smarter way it wouldn't have looked that good or if you had done it the dumber way it wouldn't have looked that good but like somehow you found this zone where it could feel alive and like you're saying brian organic and the the other thing i want to shout out is the the first time uh when we meet paul sunday and paul sunday comes into daniel's office to tell him about the oil that he knows i know what you're gonna say go ahead (laughs) well i mean there's so many things to say but it's it's a scene that were it shot differently could be super duper boring and (laughs) there happened to be this like tech test that was done like 10 years ago for like eye tracking software and i dug up i found a video of it on vimeo today but basically they had uh, 11 people watch that scene and track their eyes where they were looking in the frame and then it you know puts it on the screen and you can see how this long take that starts with like the silhouette of paul coming in it reveals daniel and they have some dialogue and then paul sits down and it reveals daniel's helper person and then like halfway through the scene it cuts and then it reveals that hw's behind them and basically Mm -hmm. in every one of those movements you can see people's eyes dart suddenly to you know daniel's face as he's revealed or this new person's face that's revealed and then like you know it's a moment where they're all focused but then it kind of like dissipates and they're settling into something but then a cut happens and now they're looking over here and i feel like it's just it it's like mathematical like proof of like how, <laughs> how michael's always looking for it it's like this is controlling how an audience is experiencing this scene yeah and there's proof of it and that's what and the way it's done is what makes it such a great scene and i just ah, there's so many moments like that in this movie that i like to nerd out about well but i think it's really i love that scene and i was really noticing everything you just pointed out this time about it and how it's constructed and and uh, all of that amazing sort of um yeah like the way that you're constantly recontextualizing in your mind what's happening Mm -hmm. given how many people you know are in the room Mm -hmm. right like it does change the whole dynamic every time someone new is revealed um especially when hw is back there um but i think that there's this beautiful combination in uh pt anderson movies that I, i frequently feel which is like 
the magic of like performance things and natural light things that can't be like engineered where like you almost can't all the way control them where it still feels a little bit like and especially in this movie where there's so many exteriors like nearly everything is exterior um it feels like they're out in the elements and they're um in in the same wide open spaces kind of like navigating you know nature and sort of natural things the way that the filmmakers are doing and that the actors are doing at the same time and so like with those long takes we know okay well um you can't control a gust of wind that might come by and you can't control like how a light will catch a tear in the exact place or like yeah a drop of sweat or a bead of oil on someone's face you can't necessarily control like watching the scene with hw where he chases him out and around the yard in the moonlight right after hw sets fire to the house um like that you can't control it feels like you can't control where daniel catches hw like exactly sort of to the side slash kind of behind that like bush that's blocking your view and like the way that they're like shadows fall so it's like it's the performance coming together the performance which is you know not engineerable in always like the most precise way coming together with some other things that cannot be super precisely controlled and it creates this feeling of magic that's happening on the screen right in front of you where it's just like how did you do that right. like i know how you move the dolly i know where the light is positioned and i know that you probably rehearsed and rehearsed until you hit these marks but like if you're like crying hysterically or screaming or yeah, like emoting as you're walking up the aisle of the church and all of these extras are swarming you and kissing your face and grabbing you and like blessing you. I understand the mechanics of it, but that it all comes together in this seamless way. That's what it feels like PT Anderson does probably better than anybody else. Yes. 100% all of that. I feel like that really encapsulates him and that it's yeah it is this there's enough control that you're still doing a thing but he's leaving room for like life to happen and for like the universe mm. to touch it also and yeah. that is when that all works it's beautiful and and i love it um why don't we go to lessons so what lessons are we going to take away from there will be blood another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, it's probably no um surprise anybody that i am a fan of film music and uh usually you know film soundtracks film music it's just i it's probably my most listened to genre on spotify <laughs> um so i really notice and appreciate just music in any film i see and this movie i think you mentioned the shining earlier michael it, it reminds me of the shining in, in that way that it uses music to just create almost like this sense like set expectations for the audience you know like if you were watching this movie dry just these kind of slow real-time scenes of 
this guy kind of in a mine who's who finds some oil and a horrible thing happens and he breaks his leg and then you know he gets more oil you know, that whole opening prologue that is wordless and just you kind of letting you simmer in this scene uh it has a whole different meaning and you have a whole different relationship to it when you have this extremely unnerving score underneath mm-hmm. it and like i said earlier it, it it sets this this whole like endeavor up as like a horror movie endeavor digging up oil is like this kind of horrifying unholy thing and i think this movie is a great example of this this is a movie that is trying to make kind of a i think trying to make a larger point about america about capitalism about greed and religion and when you're when you're trying to kind of say something that big it's helpful to have your score almost being like a it's almost like a key for the audience of mm. we're not, you know, there's some movies that just leave you high and dry where it's like, you're just going to see some events happen. You know, no score is going to be here to, to like tell you how to feel about it. You know, take what you will from this extremely kind of straightforward set of events. Uh, and that could be great. And and that can be interesting. And sometimes it's really nice. No country for old men. Sometimes it's, it's, great. it's <laughs> great to not have music getting in the way of, the otherwise like extremely amazing like scene that's happening in front of you but in this movie i think it's yeah just a great example of how you can use uh music that is at odds with the surface story you know there's a surface scene of maybe two men discussing a contract but the music makes me think that somebody's going to get murdered and that it tells me something about this character about this movie's point of view on this whole business uh and and i think that it's just a really interesting use of music that i that i enjoy when it's done well i think this is a great example of how to use music to to say almost to add this other layer of meaning to your film and to like encourage the audience to think about otherwise straightforward thing straightforward scenes in a in a different way so yeah great job johnny greenwood great job Paul thomas anderson for thinking of him and it, i think this movie was part of this moment where directors realized hey these like you know <laughs> rock and roll guys like maybe they could do some cool uh, film music <laughs> I, well mm-hmm. speaking of which i want to applaud you probably accidentally using the term high and dry while talking about this radiohead members score so <laughs> good work yes totally intentional well and i think that it the you know he said it's great when it's used well and i think the way the reason it works for me is that these the the emotions and the tones that it's it's putting you in do pay off like we do get there it's not just like you know you can slap any kind of music on any kind of scene and maybe tricks the people into thinking that it's good for a little bit but like at some point if that's not where the story is going if that's not connected to the subtext that's happening uh it will feel like totally like cheating but this right music... yeah like the lesson should not be slap on weird music to your scenes to make them more interesting right, so right. Think, yeah, the, yeah. This, the music in this movie works because there is a thematic reason for it to be there and you're right there is there will be blood there is there is a payoff to all this tension there is a release uh and and you should be worried about this man and uh he could snap any moment truly and he will okay. <laughs> yeah. so so yeah it's it's uh, that's a very good uh, addendum yeah, music can also just be like a crutch and just slapping on like weird uh, music that is different from the, your surface story is not inherently a good thing. Right. Only so, buys you so much if your story isn't also happening and good. 
Right. Yeah. Awesome. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, my lesson is about the opening uh, 15 minutes of the movie, uh, which shows the the reality of the world, basically. Just like mm -hmm. showing, showing what your story world is uh, and what it feels like to be to be there um it's you know no dialogue and we're basically just seeing a day in the life of daniel and how hard his job is and what everything he does um what it takes and that is both showing us who the character of daniel plainview is while also showing us uh what this world is is like to to deal with basically um and you know and we also understand what one simple problem like letting go of a rope can mean right which like later in the movie means someone's death and um it, and that's sort of that's a very paul thomas anderson thing right it's just like look yeah. at this one little thing that happened that then cascaded off into this this much bigger thing so yeah that whole sequence kind of sets us up this is what this entire movie is going to be it's going to be slow and methodical and little things are going to happen and you're not going to necessarily know right at the moment that they happen but they are going to cause these huge consequences and just compare that to if the movie opened with a monologue of Daniel talking about his day, even if it was like an amazing monologue <laughs> with an amazing performance that he was just saying like, and then I dropped the rope and it went down and I had to go and get everything. Um, it, do it doesn't have the same effect as you actually just being there with him the whole time. Or even if it was a montage where we're sort of seeing, mm. here's him doing this and here's him doing this. It's not, it is, we are with him for a long stretch of time. Um, and it just, it just cements us in the world in the world and the character so much more than if if you had done one of those other you know techniques that i just mentioned yeah absolutely that makes me now want to like cut recut the opening into like a fun montage and like <laughs> uh -huh. show somebody that's never seen the movie that before and just be like so what was your experience with the movie like with mm. a totally different opening just because i said it's like an eight like a huey lewis song like you know, <laughs> back to the future opening. religious right yeah. Oh my god, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the that whole opening. There's so many things to extract, and I think that's yeah, that's a really good one. Awesome, cool. Trisha, what's your lesson? Well, yeah. Um, so I guess my lesson is not so much of like a thing that PT Anderson did. It's more of a lesson for like me as a movie watcher, which is um, I don't know. Sometimes movies that you don't immediately respond to are worth a revisit. Um, we at the uh, church that I go to, we talk about parables a lot um, because obviously religion, um, especially like American Christianity, has a lot of parables in it. And one of the things that we say about parables is uh, sometimes a, a parable doesn't open for you, but if you keep coming back to it, sometime it might open for you. Mm. And I feel like this is a parable that didn't open for me. Uh, the first five times I've watched it. And uh, this last time I feel like it did. It really opened for me and I, I was able to see things in it that I'd never seen. And, um, you know, I, I was able to articulate to myself things about uh, hypocrisy, this theme that that really jumped out at me and and where it's present in the movie and, and, and extrapolate from there what the movie is saying about it in potentially moments where I thought meaning wasn't happening or where I felt like it was closed to me. And so like that opening sequence where he breaks his leg and he literally has to pull himself up almost quite literally by his bootstraps, <laughs> but like pull himself up out of 
poverty, right? There's like this American like myth parable thing happening where he like pulls himself up out of a hole as a microcosm for what happens in the whole movie, right? And he like works his way up to being very wealthy. That's his goal. Like there's no, even though it doesn't necessarily feel like uh, the movie does any handholding where it's like, my goal is to make this much money by this particular date <laughs> right. so that I can, you know, whatever. It doesn't give us a ticking clock or like an image of like what he's aspiring to and a trajectory in that traditional sense. But it does show you, okay, this is who the character is. This is what the goal is. And then pretty immediately, the first monologue we hear is about him claiming to be a family man and claiming to be an oil man and, uh, you know, establishing this image of himself that we know is not, is incongruous to who he actually is, that we know is a facade. And so the movie very deliberately is setting up this person who is deeply hypocritical and and so deeply hip hypocritical that he believes his own hypocrisy to a great extent to the point where his interactions with his son feel real and feel like they are you know in the same way that so many of us are the way that we uh, espouse beliefs that we do not act according to our beliefs in so many ways um i i just you know, you, when you start to revisit movies over and over again, more and more things come out to you and they uh, start to fit together into an image, at least when you're in the hands of a, an expert filmmaker like this, right? right? Like the more that I watch this, I'm like, I, I can tell that I'm watching an expertly made film. If I can't parse what it's about, perhaps I need to sit in it a little more. Or it's also okay if you don't have the patience to do that. Mm. Like... I, I probably wouldn't have had the patience to do that if it weren't for this podcast. I'm glad I did. Um, but yeah, so many things came out to me this time where I was just like, oh my God, the perversion of religion in the service of capitalism. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. Like, that's what this movie is. And then like, there's a poster that, I don't know if you guys have seen the poster, but there's a poster of like an oil derrick and there's like a cross. The oil derrick like rigging mm. is like an actual cross. And it's mm. like, well, that's history, right? Like we very clearly like twisted our religion in order to like serve the capitalistic things and like capitalism is inherently violent anyway. Um, but yeah, it just, it, it comes out if you, I don't know. It was, I was glad to be wrong about uh, thinking this movie was about senseless violence and like a sociopath <laughs> that I wasn't interested in. And mm. I was like, God, there's no women in this movie. And like, why do I care about it? Um, but actually there is something here that does resonate with me. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's also why I love this podcast and why I like talking about all of this with you guys. Cause it's right? like, we learn things and I like am exposed to things I wouldn't be otherwise. And we gather, we can extract new meaning, which is great. And I feel like that's a nice little to put, put the no country, there will be blood feud to bed that, you know, <laughs> that's what happened with me in no country. We're like, first time yeah. didn't get it watched it again and was like oh this is the best thing ever i get it now <laughs> so they're actually they walk hand in hand into the they really do yeah there's like, there's like they're like mirror images here with, yeah. with you know different people yeah. well they're actually i mean in so many ways i think they're actually not about the same things but uh, right. they right. they definitely are sort of at the same level i would say and like money bad 
you know, at least money is there. bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're so totally similar, even if yeah, they're yeah. thematically different. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think they also just, just in the way that we are responding to them, you know, they both reward sitting with them, repeat yes. viewings, yeah, uh, sure. you know, just, just kind of giving them like more than one chance because they are rich enough to, to deserve that. Right. And Definitely. like very differently made films, but both expertly made go study and watch all of them. And yeah. to round out the the lessons, uh, the moment you were just talking about, Trisha, actually, where we, we first see Daniel Plainview after the jump, uh, you know, eight years have passed or whatever it is. And he's pitching himself to the town that's just discovered oil and stuff. There is a, a long take camera shot that starts mm -hmm. on him and as he's talking it just like kind of turns and looks up at hw and we keep yeah. pushing in on hw and then back to and like that's the moment where this movie wins for me and i'm just like yeah. lost over to it for forever because i'm just like how did you know to do that like it's just so good that like we're on daniel some of this is important some of it isn't important What's actually important in this moment is to look at his son and think about his son and what's going yeah. on in that relationship. And then in the same same shot, bring it back and tie it all together. And so, yeah, basically this is all just talking about how you use the camera and cinematography to to tell a story and really get creative with, you know, as a filmmaker, you have complete control over what the audience can be looking at. And so really play with that and what uh restraint and discipline and like you know hiding information from the audience can do and when you reveal it i feel like this movie is just like a master class in that as many of his films are and i think this will not be the last time we talk about a pta uh we got to talk about punch drunk love because i feel like yes oh, we all yeah. yeah we do universally yeah. beloved right yes. so yeah. we'll do that so good. at some point awesome Ah, okay. Well, what have you guys been watching? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Yeah, so I am so excited to finally get to tell you guys about a movie that I saw at Sundance. So in January, I got to virtually attend Sundance. Um, and I saw the movie Passing, um, which just dropped on your Netflix. I strongly recommend you should check it out. It's Rebecca Hall's directorial debut. Oh, right. And um, it's black and white. It's a period movie. Um, it's about the relationship between two light-skinned black women um, in New York City in, like, the 20s. And so it's Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, who are both incredible in it. And they're like old school friends. And, and one of them is able to pass as white in like a deeply, you know, sort of segregated society. And one of them is not. Um, and they like, I, it's, just, it's really fascinating uh, sort of, um, it's based on a, it's, it's based on a novella. Um, and it's just a really sort of fascinating character study on both of these women. And the performances are excellent. The direction is great. The black and white is beautiful. Like the black and white cinematography is really beautiful. Um, I saw it back in January and I was like, I cannot wait to tell everybody about this. And then it took this long. <laughs> it took this long for uh, it to become available. But yes, it's on your Netflix. Strongly recommend you check it out. Uh, passing. And I will say the plot, um, you cannot, you cannot predict where it's going to go. Like 
it's it's about this friendship and it's about their families and there are some of the usual like entanglements or I guess sort of like interpersonal drama that you might expect from people who are are living in two different societies but where it goes is a jaw dropper so um definitely recommend that as well awesome it's such like a great setting for conflict and examination of so many things so i'm right yes yeah i'm excited to check that out yeah awesome cool alex what have you been watching uh so i've been listening to our friend ryan mcduffie's podcast uh dismembering horror Mm. um following a conversation i had with him about our psycho podcast because him and his co-host tim did a multi-part series on all the psycho movies all the sequels and, and they and they culminated it with this wow. like epic three hour long episode on the original Psycho. Wow. So if if we didn't go deep enough on Psycho for you, <laughs> you have a lot of Psycho to catch up on on Dismembering Horror. One of the reasons I wanted to check it out was that Ryan had all these insights that I wish I had like I don't know talked to him before our podcast about theme and about Ooh. kind of symbolism and things that like Trisha I think you would really appreciate. You know, he, he would argue. Hopefully, I'm saying this right, Ryan. That you know, essentially, you know, he sees there being a, a real thematic cohesion with with essentially this movie is is about you know the outer presentation of oneself versus the internal. We're all a little, we all go a little crazy sometimes. You know, there's there's the criminal and the polite, you know, secretary, but who's who's also like the criminal. There's, you know, every, every character kind of has this duality in them. And the opening shot is like the facades of the buildings inside the building is the illicit affair that is happening, whatever. So, so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, they walk through the movie almost like scene by scene and just talk about everything. So if, you know, if we, if we didn't get Psycho right for you, uh, then <laughs> there's, there's some other opinions out there you can check out. So that's this a horror podcast called Dismembering Horror. Uh, and if you want to go on the journey through all the Psycho movies with those guys, uh, you can do so. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. Great. Cool. Brian, what have you been listening to or watching? <laughs> uh, well, yes, watching. Uh, it's It's a juicy one. Uh, I mentioned Ryan Murphy uh, a few weeks ago when I was talking about American Horror Story. Uh, He also just uh, finished the last season of American Crime Story, which Mm. is called Impeachment. And it's a dramatization of the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky, Paula Jones scandal from the 90s. Um, And it is just it's just fun. It's just candy, basically. Uh, it's it's Beanie Feldstein as Monica Lewinsky, who is just oh my God. perfect. She's just so good. Sarah Paulson as Linda Tripp. Of who, course. Oh my God. She's just she's just a perfect actor. Like she this yep. might be her best performance. Like it's insane. Um Clive Owen as Bill Clinton. Like wow, which is okay. so surprising. Huh. What? Picture the exact. But I can totally see it. Picture yeah. the exact halfway point between those two people, and that's what you get. <laughs> it's, it's really <laughs> surprising. Um, and then Annalee Ashford as Paula Jones, who is uh, I had not heard of her before, but she I had to like shout her out because she does such an amazing job. Um, we were like, of course, after an episode, my girlfriend and I would go watch interviews with the original people, and she'd be like, oh my gosh, like that she looks exactly like her. She sounds exactly, you know. Um, and then it goes on. Kobe Smulders as Ann Coulter. Uh, okay. <laughs> Falco as Hillary Clinton, which is... Of course. Maybe mm. not the best casting, but she nothing against oh, her, but it's just a weird, yeah. 
Uh, Colin Hanks, Judith Light, Billy Eichner, Fred Melamed, Kevin Pollack, Mira Sorvino, esteemed character actress Margot Martindale. The gang's all here. <laughs> it's fantastic. Uh, is it unbiased? Should you believe every word of it? Uh, it's really entertaining. <laughs> it's just <laughs> worth, worth watching just for the performances alone. We're far enough out from that, you know, time uh-huh. history. Maybe we can just have fun with it now, I think. Historical <laughs> yeah. nice. accuracy doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Yeah, that does sound like a lot of fun. Um, cool. Michael? Uh, yeah, I started Succession, so I'm now on that train. Likewise, uh, yeah, as I mentioned. Yeah, and uh, yeah, just the, the pilot blew me away. Like, mm. it's just so well written and i was really struck by how it felt it feels like a great example of how to establish three-dimensional characters very efficiently where by the end of the pilot i feel like i know all of the main characters really well and i see what i can like about them and i see what i hate about them and that they have both of those characteristics happening all the time uh so if you're not already watching it, it's great. You should. I'm still early. I'm still in the first season, but it's really fun. Also, I'm sure somebody's talked about this, but it feels like like if Arrested Development was just like a little bit more of a drama, it's like kind of a similar <laughs> premise of just like an awful rich family yeah, and like family, right. power dynamics yeah. and stuff. And so I'm just <laughs> and yeah, there's lots of little funny things. Um, anyway, but yeah, Succession, really good. Yeah, that's a good example. Unlike There Will Be Blood, or unlike Daniel Plainview, it's a really interesting example of they are always trying to gain power and kind of screw each other over, but they also really love each other and like are genuinely, like do genuinely care about each other as a family. And of course that changes for different characters and stuff, but it but it makes for a really interesting dynamic to watch these characters where it's like, even when they do screw each other over, they're like, man, I can't believe you did that to me. But anyway, I'll see you at dinner or whatever. Like there's just that sort of like, every, all these things are happening at once. And it's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's very tense. There's an episode that's like, it's just like voting is happening, but it feels like the Red Wedding from like uh-huh. Game of Thrones. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, really well done. Uh, just, just wait till season three, you guys. I know, I'm oh, sure. Three. I'll be there probably in two days. Yeah, <laughs> I'm watching very fast. Yeah. Um, awesome. Cool. Well, this has been our conversation on There Will Be Blood. Thank you again to all the patrons that helped push us past 1,000 patrons. Uh, we deeply unreal. appreciate you. It's, yeah. yeah unreal um thank you to our producer vince major for keeping us sane making making all this happen i'm michael tucker i've been joined today by trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayeros. all of our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and say hi and we will see you next month for the matrix Ooh. yes yeah. all the matrix <laughs> all the matrix the all matrices. the time yeah. <laughs> i want to like hum a theme but it's just it's like the green hum techno like, yeah <laughs> shimmery sounds um, <laughs> bye everybody <laughs> <laughs> bye <laughs> i'm finished <laughs> no. bye nice